0: Welcome to The Writing Life, the podcast for anyone who writes. I'm Steph McKenna from the National Centre for Writing, based at Dragon Hall in Norwich, UNESCO City of Literature. Today I'm joined by my colleague Vicky Maitland, who's Programme Officer here at NCW, and she hasn't been on the pod for a little while. How are you today, Vicky?
1: I'm very well, thank you, Steph. Yeah, it's been a, been a long old time since I last uh, podded, so very excited to be back.
0: I think the last time the last time you were on the podcast, I wonder if we were even in the midst of lockdown and we were having to do this remotely all the time.:
1: I think we must have been. yes, yeah, it was a long old while ago, so probably.:
0: Well, it's lovely to have you back. Um, and before I introduce the main portion of this episode, I wanted to ask you about our online tutored writing courses that we've got coming up in May, and these are developed in partnership. With the University of East Anglia who um, are a very prestigious university based in Norwich where we are Um, and these courses are pretty unique aren't they because you get regular fortnightly feedback from a tutor on your creative writing.
1: Yeah they're pretty unusual in that um, they offer kind of the perfect combination of self-paced, self-led learning. So every fortnight or every three weeks for our longer courses, um, materials are unlocked on our course platform and you can work through those materials at your own pace within that period of time. But then at the end of that, fortnight or three weeks uh, you submit an assignment for direct personal feedback from your tutor Um, so you kind of get the ideal combination of being able to go through things at your own pace in your own time alongside whatever else you've got on in your life as well as uh, direct personal feedback on a regular basis with um, someone who's an expert in their field.
0: And the classes are quite small aren't they you get a small number of participants and they can be situated anywhere in the world.
1: Yeah, so it's up to 15 participants per course, um, and we've had students from all over the globe. Um, so the way the course works can be really flexible to a wide range of time zones um, and also life circumstances.
0: That's fantastic. And I've actually been reading um, some testimonials recently from previous students. Um for our website. And we've had some really fantastic feedback. There's, you know, kind of things that you wouldn't even expect like people saying that obviously, you know, the course has helped with build their confidence with their writing, but actually it's also helped with, you know, their mental health. There's kind of all, there's all kinds of benefits, isn't there?
1: Yeah, there really is. And um, as you say, it's not just about kind of the, the raw skills and techniques and kind of methodology that's taught on these courses. It is about the holistic approach to writing, the building of confidence and the gaining of um, a community of like-minded writers at similar stages of their writing journey. And it's been really brilliant. Um, I know that a number of our kind of alumni from the course have gone on to then do further study at university level, possibly MA level, um, but also have gone on to become published writers, authors in their own rights, award-winning poets. So it's been really lovely to see their journey through the courses onto um, their own future success. And that's
0: the dream, that's what we like to hear. Um, so we've got Courses run three times a year and our next semester starts in May. Um, What courses are on sale now for people to book onto?
1: So we have got a number of courses across a variety of genres including start writing courses which are 12 weeks long in fiction, poetry, crime fiction, creative non-fiction, historical fiction and memoir and we've also got a next steps course which is 18 weeks long in crime fiction too.
0: And where can people find out more about these courses?
1: can find out all the information including start dates and any application procedures on our website nationalcentreforwriting.org.uk.
0: Thanks very much Vicky. Now I'm very happy to introduce my conversation with Richard Balls who is the author of three books, A Furious Devotion, The Life of Shane McGowan, Be Stiff, The Stiff Record Story and Sex and Drugs and Rock and Roll, The Life of Ian Dury. Richard was a news journalist for 20 years, he started his career in local papers in London before moving to Dublin, and now he lives in our fine city of Norwich. His latest book about the life of Shane McGowan, the legendary Irish musician, was published in 2021 by Omnibus Press. I spoke to Richard about the rather unconventional process for gathering information for this book, and how he approaches interviews with people who may feel reluctant to speak or want to be altogether quite difficult. We also touch on the ethics of non-fiction and a writer's responsibility to not cast judgment, as well as that tricky balance between myth and reality when writing about someone who's in the spotlight. So here I am speaking a few weeks ago with the brilliant Richard Balls. Well, Richard, welcome to The Writing Life. It's so lovely to have you. Um, I've been wanting to catch up with you for quite a while and we keep missing each other at the Dragon Hall Socials, so it's really lovely to meet properly in person. We
2: do, no, I'm really looking forward to this. I really have been for a long time.
0: Yeah, well, thank you so much um, for taking the time to join me on a Friday afternoon. We're sitting in a really a really nice studio space um, at Access Creative College in Norwich. Um, and I recently read your book, A Furious Devotion, The Life of Shane McGowan*. After buying it for my dad for Christmas, and then thinking, I absolutely have to read this myself as well, as a big Show McGowan fan. And um, it's a fantastic read. It's so very well written. um, So I'm really looking forward to teasing apart the process of writing that and your other music related books. So before we get started, um could you tell us a bit about who you are and what you do in case any of the listeners haven't heard of your work
2: before? Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, Steph, I'm uh, Richard Balls and uh, I'm from Norwich, so I'm a native of the of the city and uh, my whole life has been writing. Mm-hmm. I uh, was a journalist for 20 years. Um, a lot of that was spent in Ireland. I worked in Dublin for, um, for the national papers, the daily mm. papers out there, the Irish Times, the, the Irish Independent, the Irish Press, um, and, and the Evening Herald, and lots and lots of other papers. Uh, and then when I sort of came out of journalism, um, I went into communications. Um, I am still um, a full-time communications person. Uh, So, obviously, a lot of that involves writing and and editing. So, I write write web content, press releases, stories, and so on, and case studies. Mm -hmm. Um, But also, the books have um, become a really important thing to me, personally. uh, These are things that I do outside of of work. Mm -hmm. And I've done, uh, over the last 20 years, I've done three three books. Um, The first was about Ian Jury. Uh, Sex and Drugs and Rock and Roll, and that was uh, the biography of Ian, the first one that came out. Then I did a book about Stiff Records, which was obviously the label that gave birth to uh, Ian, Elvis Costello, The Pogues, Madness, and many other bands, The Damned. Uh, And then a few years ago, I uh, got to write a book about Shane McGowan, who I'm a huge fan of.
0: Me too. Me too. When were you? So, were you a journalist, and then you started publishing these books, or did you finish your did you finish your journalism career? Yeah, I was still a, yeah writing? I was
2: still a journalist. Uh, I was actually working at the Irish Times, uh, freelancing mm. there when I got the, the, the sort of gig with Omnibus to do the book about Ian. Mm. And and I moved back to Norwich uh, in 1999, pretty much to to write that book, really, because I knew that I had to be uh, interviewing people who were here, uh, all of the people. Uh, In the reverse, obviously, with Shane, where most of the people were in Ireland. Um, In this instance, most of them were were in London or Mm. or the UK. And I came back and worked for the Eastern Daily Press. So Mm. I was a journalist there. And funnily enough, I've, in my sort of uh, career as a journalist, I was never a music journalist. I, was, ah, I never really like worked for m- music magazines. I mean, you know, I did the odd article. Um, I did write some stuff for Hot Press when, mm. I, when I was in Dublin, but I was never actually a music writer. Uh, I always wrote about um, daily politics, general news, crime, particularly. Mm. So most of my career was spent writing uh, about murder cases, missing people drugs, alcohol, abuse, you know, just and just crime in general. Uh, so, uh, you know, it, it's the books have, have led me down a really different path.
0: Mm. And that was more of a personal interest than the kind of music.
2: Yeah, for sure. I mean, you know, I was talking to someone the other day and saying that uh, I wasn't really very academic, particularly. Mm. Um, you know, I was okay, but no, nothing special. Wasn't really interested. All I was doing when I was at school was just playing records. Mm. And looking at top of the pops, and that's where my head was. Yeah, I wasn't really, uh, you know, that that committed to yeah. <laughs> uh, to, to academic uh, things, and I just really got into music. Mm. And I went to my first ever gig uh, in 1981. I went and saw Madness at, at the UEA. And in terms of uh, live music, for me, has been such a big part of my life ever mm. since. Mm. So uh, it's, it's something that I'm hugely passionate about. So to get to write about people like Ian and Shane, who, you, who are just absolute idols to me, mm. uh, was, was a huge privilege. Mm.
0: And it goes to show that you don't have to have an academic background to be a great writer and to get a, to write about the things that you're really passionate hey, about.
2: You know, I, I didn't go to university. Mm-hmm. I mean, most people now go to university. When I was at school, uh, that was much less of a thing. And mm-hmm. only um, much smaller percentages of people went off um, to, to, to higher education. So I pretty much just went from, you know, City College in Norwich uh, doing A-levels uh, and then going into Journalism college mm. for for a year, and I was straight on a paper, you wow. know. But I, I was I, I think I was still nineteen when I actually started uh, work on a newspaper in London, mm. uh, and and I never looked back, you know. And, and I think I think kind of writing saved me really because yes. I wasn't ever going to to pull up any trees uh, in, in in sort of academic life or, or or any other fields, but writing just having that one uh, mm. skill has um has actually um you know kept me going for for an entire career
0: Hmm. so the experience and the skills you'd kind of gained as a journalist must have trans must have been really helpful for that sort of that that movement into longer form storytelling but was there anything that kind of surprised you when you started the process of writing that first book was there anything that was kind of like oh well I haven't done this before or wasn't what I anticipated based on what you've been doing before
2: Definitely. I mean, I think there was a lot of crossover, clearly, because um, journalism involves uh, getting information from people, gaining their trust, and uh, and leaving them feeling that they could talk to you easily. And and that was something, obviously, that was hugely important in uh, writing a biography, uh, non-fiction, because really, in order to to get to grips with uh, your subject, it's not a question of just talking to them. Obviously, you need to talk to as many people as possible, particularly ex-girlfriends, um, band members, family members, people who've really been close to them and, and, and can really tell you not just about their career and the things that you probably know about already, but actually what kind of person are mm-hmm. they, what makes them tick. I think what was a, a surprise probably is just the scale of a book. Um, I mean, I, I probably would have written in journalism uh, uh, say 1500 words would be a long feature you know if i've ever written 2000 words that will probably be the most so the Jury book was probably one hundred and forty thousand words so i think it's the scale of of the task um which is pretty daunting when you haven't done that before um and, and at times that's just like looking up the this you know the face of a mountain yeah. and you're thinking oh my god you know this is this is just such a huge project, but actually, also just scoping that into, um, you know, how how do you tell that story? You know, how do the chapters uh, get set out? What is the journey? How do, how do you want to tell that? So it's a, it's a, a completely different um, thing to do, a completely different skill.
0: Hmm. I mean, does it take a lot of, do you spend a lot of time sort of planning and structuring? Because obviously some people, some writers, um, particularly say novelists, fiction novelists, will you know, some people might spend a lot of time planning, some people might just let it let it flow. But I imagine with the sort of books that you're writing, it takes a lot of sort of pre-planning and research and structuring and kind of piecing things together.
2: Definitely. There's a lot of work uh, in, the, in the planning stages. Uh, I mean, I like to try- Try to tell the stories chronologically. I have read um, m- music books uh, which have been uh, sort of done piecemeal, and it jumps about, and from from the beginning of the career to the end and back, and you, you're not quite sure sometimes where you are. Personally, i prefer uh, a kind of more traditional uh, structure, a sort of chronology. But you still have to decide, obviously, you know what are the what are the mo- are the moments that you leave at the end of the chapter, leave people wanting more. And then how do you begin the next chapter, and then and then maybe take them off on a completely on something different, mm-hmm. a different part of the person's life or a different stage. So there's a lot of, and I think that's a really important thing. I mean, for me, one of the things we've lost in a way with music is with Spotify. Everything is just you listen to one song, it's shuffled. You know, but records were made with a a, a a sequencing of of songs that that wasn't just thrown up in the air and they landed there. This was deliberate, uh, and it was meant to be listened to in that way. And I think with books, you know, you have to kind of uh, it is about that sequencing within within the within the structure.
0: That kind of cura- curation, I guess, the curatorial yeah. skill, yeah. Um, and you, as you say, the the books that you've written all feature. That- dozens and dozens of interviews with lots of people lots of archival research interviews with the core subjects themselves I mean how do you even begin to organize yourself with that do you have a, a process for how you arrange your time do you start at a particular source first is there yeah. a is do you have a, a sort of a routine for that or have you kind of felt? I mean I,
2: I work full-time at uh, and i do the books in parallel with a full-time job and then that's always been the case so the, all three of the books i've been working full-time when i wrote them people say to me how do you how do you get time to write books and do that i don't know the answer to that i mean especially the way i do them which is i mean you could make life easy for yourself and interview far fewer people and, uh, and do less research, and uh, try and get more information out of one person if you think that they've, they've got a lot of information. That's really, I, I, I never try and make anything easy for myself. I always seem to make it as hard as possible, which is, you know, it tracking down people. One good thing, uh, and a major difference between the Ian Jury book and the Shane one, was the Jury one was researched in the late 90s, mm. uh, where the internet was a kind of barren place. It was a kind of desert. Uh, And I was still tracking people down by banging on doors. And, and and you know ringing people on landlines and 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 you know really and a lot of people i never tracked you know people people i wanted to talk to for that book i never was able to but obviously nowadays it's much easier because some most people have some kind of digital footprint somewhere there'll be somebody you could they're either on facebook or twitter or linkedin or instagram or whatever and you can find people much much more easily uh so that that's a that's a gift in terms of the uh, research of a book Uh, that's that's just so much easier but yeah I mean I I interviewed about 60 people for the Shane book Mm -hmm. Um, and you know a lot of that did involve going to I I always um, out of choice I always interview people face to face I don't think you, you get much much more information you get better information when people trust you you build up that in, in face-to-face situations. So, you know, mostly I like to meet people in a, in a coffee shop, uh, a pub, uh, their house. Uh, somewhere
0: comfortable, I somewhere guess. Somewhere comfortable. Sort of yeah. uh, and,
2: uh, you know, it could be backstage sometimes at a venue, whatever. But whatever, however, that you know, you can do that. I mean, I did interview some people um, via Zoom and things like that or, or, or over the phone. Sinead O'Connor was one. Uh, because that, that was the way that was the only way I could do the interview, but uh, got amazing a uh, chat with her mm. about Shane. Really uh, fantastic because what I was doing with the Shane book wasn't I didn't want it to be another Pogues book because there'd already been lots of Pogues books mm. that were very good, um, and I wasn't going to add any value by doing that. I wanted to write a book about Shane and what makes him tick. Probably the answer is nobody really knows that. But (laughs) I thought I'm going to have a pretty good stab at it by asking people like her, who've known him for a really, really long time. You know, they're not just like passing people, uh, passing ships in the night. She really knows him and so do obviously his family uh, and other close friends. So, uh, yeah, I I interviewed, yeah, a lot of people for that.
0: And you've said you've you've managed to sort of with a book like um, A Furious Devotion, you've managed to secure uh, exclusive interviews with um, people around Shane who um, haven't spoken to anyone before, so ex-girlfriends or his it his English teacher. Um, how do you gain the trust of those people who might be reluctant to speak to you at first?
2: I think with um, with a, with researching a, a biography, I think it's like a sort of domino effect. You know, the first... When you interview those first people... Um, you're hoping that, obviously, they will say to other people, yeah, I met this guy, Richard, yeah, he came round to to do this thing about, you know, Shane, whatever. Oh, he he seems an okay guy. He's all right, yeah. He's all right, you know, and and the the things he asked seemed respectful and blah 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 so you know in that sense you hope that word of mouth will 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 uh you know help smooth the way for you and that you can um you know you can get the get the trust of people uh, as you go along I mean with Ian Jury for example he had cancer um Mm -hmm. right at the beginning and he was I knew that he was extremely ill and uh I went to uh Blackheath Halls for uh, uh with it's a bit of a long story but I, I was interviewing somebody from Kilburn and the High Roads um, Charlie Sinclair who used to play bass in that band with Ian and he uh, drove me to Black Hall. so I arrived with Charlie and we went into the dressing room uh, and Ian was very obviously, obviously delighted to see Charlie his old pal he didn't know me and had never heard heard of me and he really kind of dissed me you know like Charlie was saying oh I've got Richard here you know he's doing the book and i Oh, I know nothing about no book. Who's he, you know? You know. And, and and I just thought, fine, that's that's fine. Um, you know, absolutely, he has no reason to speak to me. Uh, so I just thought, okay, right, so that that's okay. Let's just, um, let's kind of start from the outside. Let's treat this like a target, that he's in the middle. And I'm gonna just gradually work my way towards that center. Um, being really careful because you know i mean he's pretty uh notori- can be notoriously grumpy um, and i just, so i had to tread really carefully so i almost picked people to start with who didn't know him so well um that weren't going to immediately go to him and say oh i've had this guy ring me up he's hassling me whatever you know and just gently move towards the center talking to people and just gaining that trust like like you said and and that did um, it was you know it was kind of a torturous process at times but it worked
0: mm. and you you kind of did something similar with Shane so you you got to know Shane through someone that he he kind of yeah. knew and trusted as well
2: yeah and I, I mean with Shane I mean you know I, I, he has a very very small little group of friends he's not somebody that is out all the time particularly nowadays because he because of his um, mobility issues mm. so there's not many people in that little orbit of his, so to get into that was was so lucky, and that was through Paul, um, who uh, I met. Uh, he facilitated an interview that I did with Shane for the Stiff Records book, mm. and that was at a sort of bistro in London, and. You know, I knew that uh, it, I sensed straight away. I had to meet him outside a clinic in Belgravia, a private clinic in the middle of the afternoon. He comes out wearing shades, staggers out of this place. He's, you know, and he's and he's off. He goes along the pavement, and I'm thinking, again, you know, I think, okay, fine, you know, it's, you know, he's, he's, he said hello, but, but you know, I could sense this is not going to be easy we're just going to take this really handy uh we're going to sit and have a few drinks let's you know let's just get him settled and paul was kind of winking at me going you know yeah you know just for the minute let's just take it easy and you have to just roll with it you just have to roll with it and think okay we might sit and have drinks for several hours and maybe then will be the time uh you know to, to speak to him um, I mean, during the course of that, I mean, he fell asleep on my uh, digital recorder on the table. Brilliant. Um, he went off and locked him, managed to lock himself in the toilet uh, in the venue. And we had to go and get the staff to go and get him out. Um, you know, so uh, those, those even in that short window, those things happened.
0: We had a sense of uh, what might be.
2: Yeah, and, might and I kind ahead. of thought, you know, he's so interesting. Um, I, I sensed that the, he he was somebody who was actually quite different from the way that most people thought he would be. Mm. And that just really got, you know, whetted my appetite for for, for wanting to spend more time around him.
0: Mm. So conventional interview techniques were absolutely not going to cut it uh, with this book. And when I was reading it, I I so enjoyed, and I just got such a strong sense of... <laughs> your persistence but in a very, just in a way that made Shane feel very, very comfortable so, you know, you had one-to-one conversations with him at home or at the pub or around his family Um, he doesn't like, he clearly does not like direct questions um, and there are subjects that he actually doesn't have any interest talking about, for example the Pogues, so, you know, a huge part of his life and his career and he's not interested in talking about it Um, so how how did you adjust your well you've talked a little bit about that you kind of had to adjust your technique to make Shane feel more comfortable but how did you tease the most kind of crucial moments of his life story from the man himself without making it feel kind of invasive to him I
2: mean that is a brilliant question I mean this this was the nub of it really so Paul took me over to Dublin with him and he just said to me look you know, we're gonna go over. We're gonna go into Shane's flat, and, and we're gonna, you know, and we, we were there for like days at a time. Uh, there were times I went over five times to mm. Ireland during the course of the book, and and it, it, all of those occasions I was at some point in Shane's flat. Sometimes I actually stayed over and slept on a mattress in the, in a back room of his flat. Um, being around him and, and, and stuff is not for ev- it's not for everyone. Mm. Let let me tell you. Um, you know it's not for the faint-hearted so it's also not for people who don't have a lot of patience now I don't actually think that I'm a particularly patient person really? but actually no. if I if I am right and I'm not actually a very patient uh, I had to teach myself immense patience you know the first time I ever went into his flat um, and we were there and he's incredibly generous and very quiet You know, he's not, I mean, he's known as this hellraiser because Mm. that's what the tabloid headlines have told us for for decades that he is. He sits really quietly. He talks quietly. You know, he just goes, Oh, get yourself a drink there, Richard. You know, he he, he just wants you to feel at home. Um, But he hates being interviewed. He's always hated being interviewed. So straight away, I'm thinking, why am I writing a book about somebody who hates being interviewed? Not only that, but as you said he hates being interviewed about his career and his work that's the thing that you cannot ask him about mm. so there's no point in asking about oh that tour and that record and it's just that you know literally he's going to switch it right off so i'm thinking the first visit i actually was sitting in it and i thought right i'm not even going to try and record anything on this trip
0: mm.
2: not just in that moment but on the whole trip i just thought this trip is a reconnaissance mission <laughs> to Uh, to build trust with this guy, you know, and and if I can go back to Norwich from Ireland and he's thinking, well, he's okay, Mm. then that has been... Mission accomplished. Mission accomplished. Um, Mission McGowan is off to a good start and, and, you know, Operation Shane. And that actually did really serve me well. Mm. Um, I never really interviewed him at all. I mean, it, it wasn't like that. He knew that I had the recorder um we would be sitting in you know it, several of us there having having a glass of wine because white wine this Shane's, you know drink of choice these days he just sits there with a bottle of wine sharing it all with us um and uh, and, and it was really enjoyable just uh, he but he also watches television 24 hours a day he even when he goes to bed the telly is left on with him facing towards it um and crucially it's on a blaring volume so even when he was talking to me and i actually was recording something and i was thinking great great he's saying so i'm gonna get this i'm, I'm gonna i'm recording a bit here even then i'm thinking but will i be able to hear it because first of all the television is blaring because we've got the godfather on or hang him high or whatever he was watching and uh, also he is very difficult to understand even when he's speaking anyway so, you know, when you're thinking, "Oh, this is good. We've got on to this great bit that I want to talk about about his school or his, you know, his childhood or something." But it's all, and you're thinking, "Oh my goodness, it's so unintelligible."
0: Yeah, it's not the clearest speaker. No. Anyway, and is then he? you get
2: the at the that sort of rattlesnake um, laugh at the at the end of every sentence punctuating the whole thing. So, you know, in terms of interviewing conditions...
0: It's like the loudest safari you've ever... Yeah,
2: so you've got blaring television, you've got somebody who's un- who do- who's hard to hear, you've got somebody who hates being interviewed, doesn't want to talk about their work, and most of the times you're ever going to get anything from them will be very late at night or in the middle of the morning.
0: And when you mentioned, you know, there are lots of other books about the Pogues out there, so if someone wants to read a book about the mm. Pogues and that career um they certainly can but this yep. book is very much about Shane and um I really got it was those moments like um talking about his having tv or film on in the background all the time or all those kind of really private intimate things about him that I found to be absolutely illuminating and fascinating and I think you could easily read a book like this without listening without really knowing the Pogues and still find it a really really interesting account of a very unique person Um, did the sense of kind of what was most important to him such as his memories of his childhood and sort of his time spent on his grandparents farm did that help to that end up Changing the way you structured the story. Did it kind of take things in a different direction to what you first anticipated?
2: I think it did really and I think it sort of um, vindicated my um, feeling at the beginning that I shouldn't write a book about the pokes and the the music. Um, Obviously the stiff book was very much about what records came out Mm. and when and how they did in the charts and, and and the whole direction of the company kept changing. But here this was about him and I wanted to try to get to the to the to the parts of Shane that other people hadn't ever really got to um also myths have over the years grown up like weeds around Shane's story to the point where actually you know it, it's completely uh, invisible now where he where he came from I mean you've had actual documentaries on tv that said he was born in Ireland You know, he was born on the banks of the River Shannon. He was born in Kent, you know. So, I mean, that's the level of research that that people have done in the past. However, to be fair to them, the reason they said things like that was because he has said that he was born in Ireland. And I've read interviews where he asked that direct question. He said, yeah, I was born in Tipperary. So you can see where this has all come from. Mm. But also, I had to kind of untangle all of this, this, this kind of mythology, Uh, without upsetting him because his line has always been that he that he grew up in Ireland his parents went to England and and they kind of almost left him behind with his aunts and uncles and grandparents to be looked after but there's none of this ever happened you know this this is not what happened and it and it was actually very important that he to for me to say he was brought up in the UK because that's what um, informed the Pogues. That's what shaped the band. All of those early songs uh, are about London. You know, they're not about Tipperary in the Main. They're about King's Cross. They're about Hammersmith. They're about all these places that he, and places in Soho that he hung out. And that's that's what um, really uh, gave the, the Pogues that the, the lyrics of the Pogues that kind of flavour. Mm. Uh, so for me, it was. You're right. It did. It did. Um, sort of direct the the course uh, of the narrative because these were the things that are so important to him Mm. and then it was about understanding why
0: it's the why isn't it more than that and yeah you mentioned that I was going to ask you about kind of myth versus reality and as you say there are actually some truths that are um, important to the story but then there are other myths that you might I don't know if you were telling another story you might want to dispel the myths but the myths are that they are part of Shane. And as you say, there are some fabrications that even he believes about himself Uh, now. So you can't... It it must be difficult to... You don't want to untangle it completely because those myths make him what he
1: is. Yeah, he's
2: a great storyteller. I mean, Irish Ireland has such an amazing tradition... Uh, going back centuries of storytelling, and Shane is part of that history, that wonderful history, and he he has a very very important place in in the sort of Irish songbook and 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 the storytelling history of the country, uh, and and he's revered quite rightly uh, for that, but yeah, I mean. You know, he has he, he actually believes a lot of this stuff. It's not that he is deliberately um, telling an, an, an untruth uh, or trying to mislead you. He he actually believes a lot of this stuff. So it's it that's another difficult one. That you're walking a tightrope there because you don't you don't want to be um, untangling it to the point where he's kind of saying, well, look, you know, this guy's writing you know a load of old stuff mm. uh, that that's not right uh you, you know I had to try and keep him on board but equally I wanted to you know for for Siobhan and his his dad Morris and other people you know they were very keen that the book tell, tells the story that, that they remembered mm. so you you, you it's, a, it's a balancing act
0: it's a tightrope yeah you must have felt did you feel quite a lot of responsibility actually towards lots <coughs> of different players not just Shane
2: I mean sometimes uh as a biographer it's you know i kind of think you know why why am i so arrogant that that what makes me think that i could write about this person's life i walk into their home sitting there you know recording stuff when they're trying to watch television (laughs) and trying to have a drink um you know what makes me think that um that i have that uh, you know that right so and i often feel a bit conflicted that you know sometimes you think i really am just kind of intruding that's the ultimate intrusion in a way that you are basically stepping into someone's life and saying i'm doing this this is what i'm you know this is what i'm going to ask you about i'm going to write this um i mean it was done with him um so it was authorized in that in that sense that he was cooperating as much as shane ever you know cooperates with anybody um, which is another whole story but um you know it is a huge responsibility but then also you, you you need actually um humility really once you start doing it you can't you, you know you must you have to be uh, uh you know come over as somebody that people can trust and that they, they know that um, you are going to respect uh, the information that they've given you and and it's an enormous weight of responsibility
0: do you still feel it now, or is it lifted? Does it feel lifted now that well, I think
2: it's lifted? Because um, you know, with the I remember with the Ian book. I remember um, Mickey Gallagher uh, t- talking to me. He's the key, the keyboard player in the Blockheads, and I remember him saying to me, he he rang me and he said, I read this last night, and he said, I read it. I sat up nearly all night and read the whole thing in one sitting and cried. You know, real it really really teared up. Um, and because obviously at this point Ian had sort of had died you mm. know by the time the book had come out. Mm. So his, that was still very raw for, for, for his family and for the band. Uh, so that, that was pleasing for me in the sense that this was somebody who's very, very close to Ian and who had he actually helped me with that book more than anybody, uh, Mickey. Uh, so for him to say that, kind of that did reassure me that, that I hadn't kind of I had been respectful. Um, But also, I I try to to tell um, people's lives as truthfully as possible Mm -hmm. and to be, and a lot of the reviews of of the Ian book and the Shane book have all commented about how honest it is, brutally honest at at times. Um, And that is a real tightrope, trying to, you know, trying to sort of uh, be honest and and call out things without being disrespectful about it.
0: Mm. Yeah. There's there's a broad spectrum of emotions um in a book like A Fierce Devotion. Um, there's kind of there's nostalgia and there's warmth and there's a lot of humor and there's a lot of respect for great talent. But as you say, your your writing is also not shying away from the really the dark realities of someone's life. Um And there's some very complex and contradictory behaviour there. And actually, some behaviour that's actually kind of unacceptable in a lot of ways. Mm. And there's a lot Mm. of drug and alcohol misuse too. Um, But there I I didn't feel like there was a moral judgment there from you as a writer. And do you feel it's your responsibility to leave judgment at the door with this kind of storytelling? And is that a difficult thing to achieve?
2: I think that's brilliantly put um yeah i've 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 not heard it put in that way i think i think it's I, yeah i don't want to, that first of all i never want my voice um uh as a as the author as the biographer to encroach yeah it's not about me it's about the, the subject and and that must always be the case i don't like this kind of you know it's a bit like the jules holland thing you know, I just feel like saying every time I see that, I was like, "Get out of the way!" <laughs> you know, I want to step see, back. Yep. I want to see the people that that are on the show, uh, not you. And it's it's never about the, the writer. I think with Shane at the very beginning, I had that uh, little bit at the beginning of the book where I talked about the writing of it briefly. I think because I, because it was so extreme. Mm. The, 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 because the the interviewing conditions were so, so unbelievably difficult, and I don't mean that in any way uh, uh, as a disrespect to Shane, he was you know generous to a fault with his time, with his money, just a lovely man, and I really uh, enjoyed pretty much every moment that I spent with him. However, you know a lot of his behaviour uh, is contradictory, and and so on, and you have to leave all that in there. It's it's for the readers to to decide. What they think is what makes him tick. Why he's, why he uh, feels a certain way about things, you know. And also, just make that difficultness a virtue. Mm. Make that a virtue. You just leave all that in there, warts and all, um, contradictions. That's what makes people uh, who they are. So, yeah, I think it's it's for me to present everything, not to come to particular conclusions myself and then leave other people to decide what, you know, what they think.
0: Mm. And the only, occasionally you might have some, maybe not conclusions, but insight or um, judgments made by the people around Shane. So I got the sense that, you know, some people felt that he did something for a particular reason, or they thought that his, you know, his musical career was enhanced by something, or maybe actually it was to his detriment. But those pieces were in there, but your actual... Uh, your yeah your personal sort of judgment was definitely i didn 't get a sense that that was well thank
2: all. thank you for saying that i mean I think it is you know, no one really wants that that voice getting in the way mm. uh, and obscuring the the truths that are there uh, i mean I think the point you make about um you know for example um, was his writing for, uh, enhanced by um the uh, u- use of alcohol and drugs. I think in the early days of the Pogues when that when the image was that's where the real image started is the hard drinking band you know this kind of band of brothers uh, that was going to take on the world we were living this living the ultimate kind of rock and roll life and you know at that time Shane was living in a bed sit, literally sk- living underneath a pile of bottles and cigarette ends and all the rest of it and paraphernalia uh, and on the wall was a was a, a picture of brendan bean you know he was his effectively his kind of muse really mm-hmm. and uh, and he being pops up in in songs uh pokes songs in the early days so i mean, i think there was definitely a sense in shane that he thought being a hard drinking person was that that was actually enhancing his lyrics and, and his ability to produce these songs um but then again later you have to sort of look and say well now he hasn't recorded any original material or released i should say rather than recorded uh, for for over 25 years um you know that's a hell of a hiatus mm-hmm. and you know you, again it's for people to draw conclusions as to why you know there was you know the flame burned very brightly but it didn't burn for that long mm-hmm. you know you look at that 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 period of writing of early pokes through to the last albums um, that's quite a short little period but the, the you know the, the flame really did burn bright for that for that time
0: mm. and this isn't, well, I say it's not really a question, but um, I also wanted to comment on one of the other really illuminating things for me was that, um, as you say, the the book doesn't, um, it kind of leaves the reader to make their own judgments and their own decisions and sort of gain their own insights. But one thing I felt that you, you did explain um, to the reader that they shouldn't feel is pity for Shane. I really got the sense that, you know whether it's the life that you would choose to lead or not, this is Shane's life, and he was he has chosen pretty much all of it, and that felt like a a side to his. His entire lifestyle and and his character that I hadn't seen before as well. So.
2: Oh, that's that's amazing. I I am really again really pleased to hear that because I mean obviously because he hasn't he hasn't walked now for seven years you know and he's very immobile. But you're right. I mean it, 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 nobody uh, should feel pity for Shane at all. And Sinead O'Connor was really really clear on this point. You know he's not to be pitied. He has chosen this life, uh, right from you know right from the outset. You know when he when he got into when he discovered punk, which was a an absolute, you know, moment in his life when uh, when he was facing a real lack of direction. He'd come out, he'd been in, in, treated in Bethlehem Hospital, uh, had a horrendous, must, what, what must have been a horrendous time experience in there. Comes out, goes to the show, sees the Sex Pistols, and the rest is history. You know, he just literally just looked up on stage, saw this goofy, ginger Irish guy, second generation, exactly same background as shane and and it was a real kind of like damascene moment you know so um you know that, 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 that that's he has chosen the life that, that that he's lived and uh lots of things have happened along the way uh, tragically uh, lot, lots of people have have died along the way um, some of them uh, in chains, uh, flat, mm. uh, very young people in their twenties. You know, and and I really didn't try to shy away from any of that um, in the book. I, I wanted that to be in there um, because you know these are the consequences of um, of of that kind of lifestyle sometimes. And yeah, uh, he, he's not to be pit- pitied at all, and he's not looking for it.
0: And this book took a long time. I'm sure all of your books actually have taken a long time to research and write years rather than months. Um, and sometimes, especially when you're interviewing or dealing with a tricky, a tricky customer, um, things don't, don't go to plan. They don't go well. Um, and I imagine there were moments when Shane made it pretty clear that he wasn't in the mood or not in the interested, you know, not today's not the day. Um, did you ever feel like things were sort of stalling or not getting anywhere? Did you ever get feel a sense of kind of why on earth am I even doing this? How did you persevere? I
2: mean, you know, like uh, when I when I when I think about it, like, I look back and think, yeah, I was sort of lying on a on a on a mattress um uh in, in in the back of Shane's flat in Dublin, and you kind of wake up, and it's like that thing, every time you wake up, it's like you think, oh, for a second you think, where am I? you know, looking around, you think oh yeah I'm in Shane McGowan's flat uh, and then he's sort of like I was pad, pad along the, the corridor and he's I can see his top of his head he's still in the armchair you know this is like you know in the morning 10 o'clock in the morning or something and he's still there hasn't gone to bed probably the telly's still on and he's still got his gl- glass of wine there he's, incredible you know that, that he uh, uh, Steve Lillywhite, uh, the, the producer of, uh, of of a couple of the Pogues albums he produced Fairytale New York famously that um, where Shane sang with his wife uh, Kirsty McColl um, he said that um, the only two people that he's worked with who he would describe as true bohemians were Shane McGowan and Keith Richards um, you know and, and he's worked with a lot of people You know, time means absolutely nothing to Shane. He doesn't, it's not a thing. Um, And that's where I was fortunate because the only way really to get information is is to be around him for so long. If you try to arrange, this is what journalists have had over the years, they'll try and arrange to meet Shane somewhere, Hopeless absolutely hopeless you know it doesn't show up no it doesn't show and it for hours and hours or or may not show at all um and you know someone else who was doing a documentary described it as being like wildlife photography you know it's like trying to track a snow leopard and sitting in a freezing cold for days and days and nothing and then all of a sudden you get a a few seconds of footage and it's gone again that's it it's like that with shane you know it's like nature filming nature uh in the raw and you you've just got to roll with it and uh, there were times definitely when I thought what a waste of time this is we've been sitting here for days I haven't recorded anything you know I, he, he's obviously not interested and there were other times when I think I wrote about it in the beginning of the book saying I can't remember even what we were discussing but he got really annoyed um, and I think I asked to if I could turn the television down, which is like, you, know, no, you no. do not ask Shane to turn it up. But I just thought, I've had enough of this now. It's three in the morning. I um, <laughs> I have to get something because I was on a timer, you know, the, the the meter was running for me because I live in Norwich and I was sitting in his flat in Dublin. I couldn't be there forever. I had to get back and do a job. So, uh, you know, so in the one sense, although I had to roll with it, as much as possible with him, and take his um, irascibility and just and just just brush it off. Equally, the meter was running for me. I had to get something. Uh, so it was. Yeah, there were times when I just thought, "This is this is crazy. What am I doing?"
0: How did you keep going? Just but those bit. It was. Those moments of kind of, I don't want to say those moments of magic, but I guess when he finally did, you know, open up a little bit more. Yeah, I I suppose
2: the thing was that I knew ultimately that I was in a really, really privileged position. You know, I was writing a book about Shane McGowan with his cooperation, kind of, uh, and the the full cooperation of of his sister uh, and his dad. So everybody involved around the Pogues, I interviewed about five other people from the Pogues as well, Um, so that's that's pretty much a a, a clean sweep in terms of cooperation Um, so I was in that really privileged position so I had to keep reminding myself when things were going badly that um, no one else was going to do a book um, that was going to come close to the kind of you know things that I was getting to and um, I kept myself going with that I think
0: and do you know whether um, any of Shane's family or friends or Shane himself have read the book have you heard from them
2: uh siobhan uh, uh was 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 very very helpful right from the beginning and she was reading bits and pieces as we went along her and her dad uh, absolutely love the book because they they feel that you know it's it's it is the truth uh, uh this is the the this is the story that they know happened um and they also felt it was respectful for shane i mean they love shane you know they they absolutely adore Shane, uh, and 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 it it, it is, it's a close family. Um, Shane, I think, has read it. I mean, or read bits of it. Um, apparently, did say to someone recently that it was a, it was a good book. This is just hearsay, but somebody who was there, uh, he probably deny that say ever saying it. I mean, he did say from the outset, "I'll never read it," which is which is fine, and I I actually never expected him to. So again, I think it's important not to have. Um, you know uh, those those kind of ambitions for it because actually in, in a lot of he you know like I say if he's one of the ultimate bohemians, it's not important to him. You know he didn't he didn't ask for it to be written. Uh, I imposed myself on him and uh, and I was only there under sufferance, as I, as I was reminded on a few occasions. So you just have to roll with it and think who else would get this privileged you know position. Well,
0: I as i said i absolutely love the book and i'm really keen to read your two other books i know less about ian currie actually so it will be a it will be an interesting journey for me and i'm certainly going to do it um before we wrap up what what's for you what's on for you next have you got anything else in the pipeline book wise have you got ideas knocking around
2: i don't uh, i really desperately would like to to have something i always like to have a project mm-hmm. uh in my head you know however embryonic it is i, I like to have something that, that i'm kind of working towards and i, and I don't really at, at the moment i think Shane was such a it was such a big task um not only because it obviously involved um, traveling to Ireland a lot, uh, which, uh, backwards and forwards, and also just the sheer, <laughs> the sheer uh, challenge of extracting information from somebody who, who is famously doesn't like talking um, and is a man of very few words. So I think maybe that, that kind of did, um, did take quite a lot out of me, really. But I'm very keen to to carry on writing about music, Uh, As I said to you, it was not something that I ever did really in my career as a journalist, although I reviewed gigs uh, very often. Um, So for me, it's such a privilege to write about um, my big passion in life, which is music. So I'm sure I will find something pretty soon.
0: Brilliant. Well, Richard, thank you so much for joining me on The Writing Life today. It's been lovely to have you and um, I'm sure we'll have you on again in the future when you've written your next book.
2: Thank you so much.
0: A big thank you to Richard for his time. Please track down his books, especially A Furious Devotion. It's a fascinating read, even if you're not a Pogues fan. If you have questions or you want to get in touch, you can find us at Writer's Centre on Twitter and Instagram. We're on on Facebook if you search for National Centre for Writing and you can browse all of our courses, events, free writer resources and opportunities on our website, nationalcentreforwriting.org.uk. You'll also find a form to sign up to our regular newsletter. As a UK registered charity, we rely on the generosity of our supporters to make our work possible. You can make a donation over on the website by going to the Support Us page. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast on your usual podcast channels and please do leave us a review because it helps other people to find us. Thanks again, keep writing and I'll catch you on the next episode.